Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome back to another episode of the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. I'm your host, Modern Bar Cart CEO, Eric Koslick. This week, we've got a crowd-sourced mailbag episode where we take some of the best questions from our audience over the past several months and share them with you along with our answers so that you can learn from the kinds of questions that home bartenders out there are asking us on a weekly basis. If you can't tell from my voice, I'm a little under the weather, so I pushed back this week's interview to avoid contaminating any of our valued guests. But a lot of these listener questions have been burning a hole in my pocket for several months now, so I thought this would be the perfect time for us to learn together while I recover from the cold that launched a thousand tissues. But hey, just because I can't breathe like a normal person right now doesn't mean that you shouldn't take this as a prime opportunity to make yourself a drink. This week's featured cocktail is the Old Alliance, and this is an extremely fitting time for me to share this cocktail with you because I discovered it a couple years ago, the last time I got sick like this. So my nose was running like a faucet and I figured, screw it, if I'm gonna be miserable, I'm at least gonna have a cocktail. So to justify it, I Googled something like medicinal cocktails or something like that. And on some listicle inhabiting some poorly lit corner of the internet, I found the Old Alliance. To make it, you'll need one ounce of scotch, Blended is common here, but single malt is also good. I used Laphroaig 10-year, as I am wont to do. One ounce of green chartreuse. One bar spoon of Benedictine, which, like chartreuse, is a French herbal liqueur. And one bar spoon of Grand Marnier. This is a boozy, stirred drink, so you combine all these ingredients in a mixing glass with ice, stir until well-chilled and diluted, and strain into a stemmed cocktail glass. Sometimes, I use the added touch of a nice lemon twist garnish depending on what kind of scotch I've got setting the tone, but this is optional and completely up to your own taste. This would also be the point in time where I state that I'm not a doctor and that cocktails can't cure your cold. As a person, I kind of straddle the line between modern medicine and traditional remedies. I certainly don't think everything needs to be solved with a pill, but on the other hand, I also take great comfort in having trained professionals and scientific case studies dictating serious medical treatment for myself and my loved ones. That being said, when I got about halfway through this cocktail, my nose stopped running for a good 30 to 40 minutes. It was like turning off a faucet. And I know anybody out there with a science degree is probably screaming bloody placebo effect right now. But before we write it off, consider this. Green chartreuse contains over 120 herbs and spices, many of which have been used for millennia in homeopathic and herbal healing traditions around the world. And Benedictine might not boast as wide a botanical profile, but it inhabits that same quasi-medicinal tradition. These products were effectively the NyQuil of their day. The last thing I should mention about this cocktail is that it's kind of a cool historical reference. The word old in Old Alliance is spelled with an A-U in the Scottish tradition, as in Old Lang Syne, the song that gets resurrected every New Year's Eve. And this is appropriate, right? Because we've got scotch in the cocktail, but the alliance that's being referenced is a partnership between the Jacobite Scots and the French, which explains all those French ingredients, the Chartreuse, Benedictine, and Grand Marnier. This is only 
a mild form of spoiler alert, but if you happen to be a fan of the popular stars show Outlander, you might take a bit of plot-driven amusement in this cocktail. So feel free to incorporate it into your next time-traveling Scottish Highland fantasy. So now that many of you are seriously questioning the kind of TV I watch, let's turn our attention to those mailbag questions before I embarrass myself any further. First up, we've got a question from Sophia M. from Houston, Texas. She writes, Hi, Modern Bar Cart. Recently listened to your rum episode and I really enjoyed it. I consider myself an amateur rum aficionado, but the other day I came across something kind of strange. I was at my friend's housewarming party and one of her cousins from the DR, I'm guessing that's the Dominican Republic, pulled out this unlabeled glass bottle and started pouring shots. She said, It was rum moonshine, but she was already tipsy and my Spanish is a little rusty. It tasted sort of like white rum I've had before, but there was also something a little different that I couldn't quite put my finger on. Have you ever come across something like this? Is it legit or do you think I was drinking straight moonshine? Let me know what you think, Sophia. Well, Sophia, I gotta say, that's an interesting question. And while we here at Modern Bar Cart can't really officially advocate drinking booze out of unlabeled bottles for safety reasons, I think we can still shine a little light on this question. One of the things that immediately jumped out at me from your email is that your friend's cousin was from the Dominican Republic, located in the Caribbean on the island of Hispaniola, which it shares with the nation of Haiti. And that's when things started potentially clicking for me here. Even though I didn't get to taste this moonshine like you did, if I had to make an educated guess... I'd say it was likely a product called clarin, which is a traditional rustic Haitian moonshine made using sugarcane. This effectively makes it a rum, but as you picked up on during your tasting, there are some interesting nuances. I've recently been doing some independent research on clarin because it's one of the few dying breeds of traditional spirits out there, namely wild fermented, minimally processed, inherently small batch spirits. Others like it include Irish Puccine, Mexican Mezcal, and American Moonshine, and all of those have both legal and illegal variants. Now, Haiti is a really interesting country in the historical sweep of the Western Hemisphere. It's the only Caribbean nation to exist as the result of a successful slave revolution, which reveals both its people's independent streak and its origins in the sugar trade. As we know, where there's sugar, there's rum, so it's really no surprise that we're dealing with a sugarcane-based spirit, but Haiti's circumstances in the greater world stage have played a large role in creating a distilling culture that some would say is almost frozen in time. What do I mean by that? Well, in most larger countries, we're pretty content to have our state-regulated liquor systems with three-tiered distribution and government-controlled labeling rules and hefty taxes on the alcohol itself. These things keep us safe and let us know what to expect when we pick up a bottle at the liquor store. But in places where bureaucratic structure breaks down a little bit, it's still possible to come across distilling practices that are more traditional and more tied to the land. Affluent hipsters here in the U.S. would call them more authentic. This is the situation in the nation of Haiti, which most of us are familiar with only because of recent natural disasters. Due to the lack of infrastructure, a lot of people there make their living by farming, and much like the early farmers in the United States, these folks distill their excess crops in order to earn a little extra income. Cledin is fermented out in the fields 
distilled using technology much less sophisticated than what you'd find in a modern distillery, and it can often be found for sale on the side of the road in unlabeled jugs. So, Sophia, that's why I'm guessing you probably got the chance to taste some Clarin, but before we move on to another question, I want to elaborate on a couple other aspects of this traditional spirit. Since I've been doing my own research on the side, I just find it really fascinating. First, why do wild fermentation and traditional distilling practices matter? Well, if you remember back to our intro to terroir episode, you'll recall that regional differences in microbiome and human processing can have a major impact on the flavor of a spirit. And if there's one thing that booze geeks like, it's nuance, finding spirits with unique production methods and flavor profiles. Clarin is a great category for this because each distiller is going to have a slightly different yeast profile and distilling equipment from the next one, making for a category with almost unlimited complexity at the local level. If this sounds familiar to you, it's because the mezcal landscape was much the same about 15 to 20 years ago. Just a bunch of farmers making their hooch, drinking it with friends and family. Then some gringos showed up with a lot of paper, and suddenly a whole slew of new pressures are introduced into the distilling world. Currently, mezcal is in the midst of a true tragedy of the commons, with demand for the spirit completely outstripping the capacity for high-quality agave cultivation and authentic small-batch production. This is why I don't anticipate mezcal prices going down at any point in the next 30 years. All of this seems like a bit of a downer, right? But Clarin has one significant advantage over mezcal. Whereas many agave strains take 5 to 10 years to mature, and some significantly longer, sugarcane can be harvested yearly. Also, as you might imagine, the sugar output for literal sugarcane is a bit higher than what you can get from a roasted agave piña, so the potential alcohol output is greater with much less input. So, here's the grand finale of my Clarin rant. And I apologize to Sophia, who just wanted to know what she was drinking, but this is actually pretty darn important for the spirits and cocktail culture in the next decade. I believe that Clarin is set to be one of the next big spirits on the international market, which has some serious potential benefits for the impoverished nation of Haiti. Not often do market forces just lay a golden egg in your lap like this. Of course, this is likely going to be abused. Big spirits conglomerates are already on the ground scouting out who they're going to buy out and scale to massive industrial proportions. I think the best we can hope for is that we'll find some balance between enough regulation to import this stuff to the U.S. and enough respect for tradition to keep it wild fermented and traditionally distilled. But the fact remains, it's much more sustainable than agave, which has me optimistic for a positive outcome. Woo, sorry for that. I'm just super jazzed about Clarin. Now, let's move on to our next question, which is from our listener Andy in Eugene, Oregon, who writes, Hello, Eric, longtime listener, first-time writer. I've been put in charge of the drinks for my soon-to-be brother-in-law's bachelor party, and I wanted to see if you had any ideas about putting together an old-fashioned bar for 15 to 20 people. I think it would be really cool, but I'm not sure how to pull it off. Any tips? Thanks, Andy. I love this question because it combines my love for old fashions with my love for scaling cocktail experiences for a decently large group of people. The way I usually do this is by batching cocktails, but the allure of the old fashioned is it's one of those cocktails you build 
by hand in the glass. So instead of going with one or two large format batched cocktails, I'd recommend a simple and elegant buffet approach where you offer multiple variations of different ingredients and let your guests pick their own adventure. I'm pretty sure this is what Andy means when he says an old-fashioned bar, but I wanted to clarify for all our listeners out there. Now, how to execute this? Well, let's see what you can offer. Obviously, you should have a couple different types of whiskey. For 20 people, I'd recommend four 25-ounce bottles, which is going to put you at around five ounces of spirits per person, which is going to get the job done, but not completely obliterate you before any other bachelor party festivities may happen. For variation, I might recommend a weeded bourbon and a high rye bourbon, and then you can get creative from there. Maybe some Irish whiskey, a nice aged rum, a straight up bottle of classic rye whiskey, or even a bottle of scotch if you've got some scotch drinkers in the room. Once you get your bottles picked out, see if you can maybe get your hands on a couple different types of bitters. Some different aromatic bitters are always appropriate, but Also think about mixing it up with some orange or chocolate bitters, which always go over well in old fashions. For sweeteners, I'd go with simple syrup here because you definitely don't want 20 non-sober people trying to muddle sugar cubes. Cut that step out of the process. If you want to get fancy, you can offer a few different types of syrups. Maybe throw in some amaretto so that people can make a riff on the Godfather cocktail if they're Sopranos fans. Then finally, you want a nice bowl of oranges and a couple peelers available for garnishes. Don't forget the orange twist garnish. It makes the whole drink. The place where I see this being a little tricky is the ice situation. If you're in a hotel, as many bachelor parties tend to be, you'll definitely want to check out your ice maker status and proximity. And if you're not, I definitely recommend getting a nice big cooler filled with a couple bags of nice clear ice. This isn't the time to go fancy on ice, but you do want to make sure that you've got plenty of it. For 20 people, glassware, it's kind of tricky, right? You're almost at the point where real glass is feasible. So once you've taken care of all the other stuff on the list, figure out if you're in a place where glassware is available or if you'd prefer to just keep it simple and order some disposable stuff and be done with it. Definitely snap a pic and tag us at Modern Bar Cart on Instagram and Facebook when you put together your old-fashioned bar, Andy. And from us here at Modern Bar Cart, cheers to you for putting together a super classy bachelor party. This next question is from Janae in Massachusetts who writes, after listening to your milk punch episode, I wanted to make some myself, but my boyfriend is lactose intolerant. Does clarifying the milk punch make it safe to drink for people with lactose sensitivities? Fingers crossed. Well, Janae, this is an excellent question. There are a ton of different dietary and nutritional concerns you need to look out for when making cocktails, especially for other people, and lactose intolerance is a big one, particularly when we're talking milk punch, right? The short answer to your question is, unfortunately, no. Clarified milk punch is no good for the lactose intolerant among us. Lactose is water-soluble sugar, which means it gets left behind when you strain the curds out of a clarified milk punch, right? The curds don't capture that. This is one of the reasons why milk punch can still have that dairy character without looking like milk at all. The proteins are gone, but the sugars and some of the fats and other compounds remain. If you're looking for something in the milk punch world that is safe for lactose-free folks to consume, I'd recommend using a really nice almond milk or oat milk 
in a New Orleans style milk punch, which isn't clarified. We'll link to the milk punch episode in the show notes page for this episode. So anyone who visits can check out that recipe and make it at home. Just don't forget your nutmeg and your microplane. Gotta have nutmeg in that milk punch. It's essential. Next up, we've got a hardware question from Brian in Arizona who asks, Hey, Eric, huge fan of the podcast. Hoping you can give me some advice on muddlers. I want to get a really good muddler for my home bar setup. I've been using the back end of a wooden spoon for a while now, and it's time for an upgrade. When I look online, I see muddlers with smooth heads and textured heads. Which of these would you recommend for someone who makes a lot of old fashions? Thanks for your help. Well, if you think about it, Brian, a muddler with a textured head is going to work a bit differently than one with a smooth head. It's more suited to tearing than it is for grinding. And in the cocktail world, you're normally muddling one of three things, sugar, herbs, or fruit. The only cocktail out there that I can really think of that benefits from a muddler with a textured head is the mojito. Some people really like to tear up that mint when they muddle it with the sugar. Normally, when you're muddling herbs, you don't want to break the leaves because that releases some of the more bitter notes as opposed to those nice essential oils that are released when you lightly bruise them. But in a mojito, because you're adding lime and then soda water and simple syrup, it's, it's really going to minimize the impact of that bitterness. So it's okay to really get aggressive and tear things up, at least in my opinion. Now, you mentioned that you make a lot of old fashions, which is a perfect use case for a muddler with a smooth head because it maximizes contact with the sugar without you having to worry about it getting caught in the grooves of the muddler with the textured style head. So all around, I'd say for your purposes, a muddler with a flat or slightly rounded smooth head is going to be a winner. One last thing I'll add is that when it comes to muddlers, I prefer wood over stainless steel or aluminum in a home bar setting because it makes it way, way, way less likely that you'll accidentally chip a glass when you're muddling. Hope that helps. And what I'll also do is I'll link to our muddler episode in the show notes so that you can check out our extended thoughts on the topic. Next up, we've got a deep dive on scotch, courtesy of Felipe in sunny San Diego, who writes, I've been really getting into single malt scotch over the past few years. Although I'm certainly not an expert, I think I know more than the average person. But one area where I'm kind of lost is with so-called independent bottlings. How are these different from other single malts? And are they worth the money? Hoping you can shed some light. Good question, Felipe. And honestly, it's not one we've spent much time talking about on this podcast, so this is a great time to start. Basically, the difference between an independent bottling and a regular single malt offering is that a normal 10 or 12 or 18-year-old single malt aims for consistency within a brand. So if you walk up to a bottle of Laphroaig from 10 years ago and a bottle of Laphroaig that just came off the line, you can expect them to taste fairly similar. That's what master blenders shoot for. That's their job. But that's unfortunately not how barrel aging works. In other words, barrels don't care what we humans are trying to do. So depending on the weather or the temperature fluctuations within the aging facility or the moisture levels or any number of other factors, you're just going to have some barrels that turn out very different than the rest. 
So what these independent bottlers do is they go around to various barrel facilities and taste through casks from well-known scotch distillers. They may then end up purchasing one or more casks that they really like and then bottling them under their own label. It's kind of like a creme de la creme of scotch nerddom. Now, the details can get complicated. Sometimes they purchase new make spirit and age it in their own facility, which is the case with Duncan Taylor, one of the largest independent bottling operations out there. And then there are also times when you can or can't do things like put an age statement on the bottle or list the name of the distillery that actually produced the spirit. Like I said, it gets complicated fast, but I recently came across a great resource from the Spirit Guide Society podcast out in LA who interviewed Jason Johnstone Yellen from Single Cask Nation, which is a membership-based independent bottling operation. Jason really breaks down what it means to be an independent bottler, so I think instead of listening to me talk about it, you should just head on over to the show notes page where we'll link to that episode, which will give you a really good sense of the landscape. Before we get to our last question, I will add one additional comment here on the price of independent bottlings. They tend to be mucho dinero. And this isn't because the ingredients or barrels or aging practices are any better per se than any other scotch out there. It's just because someone has decided that this little batch of whiskey, this particular cask or small group of casks is particularly good, which drives up the demand on an inherently limited supply. So you're not paying for packaging or more years in a barrel necessarily. You're paying for the privilege to be one of the few folks who can own a rare and unique whiskey expression that the world will never see again. So that's why your palate is so happy and your wallet is so, so sad. Rounding out our mailbag episode, we've got a cool little cocktail party scenario from friend of the pod, Greg Azorski out in Kansas City. We've done giveaways with some of his cocktail artwork in the past, and he actually got in touch with me a few weeks back with a question about cocktails for an art gallery opening. Greg wrote, I'm having a solo exhibition of my artwork at a gallery here starting soon, and my wife and I are hosting a little cocktail party at the gallery for our friends to come see my work. A lot of it, as you know, uses primary colors, so I was thinking of trying to tie the cocktail selection into the artwork by maybe having three drinks, a red one, a blue one, and a yellow one. For the red one, I was thinking a Negroni, but I'm having trouble thinking of something for the blue and the yellow that would be simple to batch. We're having a bartender, but I thought batching them in advance would be the way to go. Any suggestions? I love this question because it's such a creative set of inputs. A red, blue, and yellow cocktail. That's just fantastic. When do you come across that? So I figured what I'd do is share my initial response to Greg and then give you an update on what he ended up serving to his guests in the end. This is a great example of the type of creative back and forth that goes into making even a small cocktail menu. And as a bonus, we've also got some pictures on the show notes page of the gallery opening and the drinks. So head on over there and check that out. Here's my response to Greg. Hi, Greg. For yellow drinks, I usually recommend Suze. It's a bitter gentian liqueur from France that goes well with gin. But if you want more of a sessionable drink, you could just serve Suze and tonic with a squeeze of lemon. For blue, it's tricky. Butterfly pea flowers can be made into a nice deep blue syrup. But 
it'll change color to pink in the presence of acidity. So watch out for that. You can pick up butterfly pea flowers on Amazon. They're pretty neat. Your other two options would be Magellan Gin, which uses iris petals, and Blue Curacao, which I think is just nonsense. What if you did a riff on a Kier Royale with butterfly pea syrup added to sparkling white wine? That way it's cheap and easy. I really like that lineup. Negroni, boozy and classic, Susan Tonic, light and citrusy, and a Blue Royale. Best of luck, and let me know how it goes. In the end, Greg ended up going with, of course, the Negroni, can't go wrong there, a bluish margarita, which I thought was really creative for the citrus forward option, and a yellow summer brew. According to him, the cocktails were a hit, and the gallery event was a great success. We love helping folks workshop cocktail menus, so please, please don't be shy about blowing us up on email or social media. All the questions today were sent to us sometime over the past couple months at podcast at modernbarcart.com. So if you have a cocktail or spirit-related query that's burning a hole in your liquor cabinet, please send it our way. Until next time, I'm your under-the-weather host, Modern Bar Cart CEO, Eric Koslick, wishing you happy cocktailing and really hoping you've gone through fewer tissues than I have in the past couple days. Cheers to your health. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Barcart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and production assistance by Samantha Reed, a set of awesome cocktail and spirit-related questions from the Modern Bar Cart podcast listener base, and a little bit of struggling narration by yours truly, who's still currently struggling to breathe. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2019.